I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, August 6th, 2012. Now this is going to sound crazy, but uh, I was outside today, clear, nice, mild weather. Here in Indiana, that felt like the first twinges like ever so slight of fall. Yeah, I know, it's still August. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there's, well... No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And it, it, I was telling somebody the other day, I said, you know, listen, it's, it's not as if American evangelicalism has fallen to some great, powerful heresy. Um, it's really just fallen to utter foolishness. It's, it's as if, collectively you know the um the biblical depth of of most of american evangelicalism has collectively gone down to a third grade level and this is not good the the biblical illiteracy is so high in the united states that it's it's not only frightening it it's it's embarrassing and it's really bad it's like yeah, another way i like to put it from time to time is like you know it's as if all of our, you know, all of our booster shots have run out, and now we're getting all of these weird, strange, childhood heresies. These, and they're coming back in like multiples. I mean, <laughs> and like Pelagianism mixed with really bad, you know, mysticism. Socinianism, you know, again mixed with mystic. Mysticism seems to be the uh, the common ingredient in a lot of what's going on here. And uh, what I mean by that is, is that. There are so many folks out there who, you know, who call themselves Protestant or they think that they're part of, you know, they're, they're, you know, they will say, oh, those Catholics are wrong. And then you ask them why. And it's like, because, um, 
Um, because they have a pope. Well, yeah, that's bad. Why is it bad? Um, yeah, I. Well, okay. Well, if you think Roman Catholic Catholicism is bad, why are you practicing the same monastic, you know, mysticism practices that are rampant in Roman Catholicism? What do you mean? It's <laughs> like, there's. Let's just put it this way, okay? There is a lot of work to do, and it doesn't ever end. And the reason why is because every single generation of humanity that is born is born dead in trespasses and sin. So the job of making disciples, baptizing, teaching, that that, that job never ends for the church. You don't get to rest on your laurels. It, it, it's This is something that must occur in every single generation. But for whatever reason, it's as if... The current generation that's coming up, you know, that they, whoever was teaching them wasn't paying attention. It's like they had something else that they were uh, doing that they thought was more important and they didn't get around to actually doing their job. And so now we've got, you know, literally uh, evangelicalism is, you know, 10 miles wide and a half an inch deep and it's getting less deep. I mean, you, you could see the water evaporating off the top of this thing. We're going to be down to like, you know, a quarter of an inch if this continues at this pace. It's not good. It's just, it's not good. And so, uh, you know, being only one person and being a teacher in the church, you know, I, that's why I do what I do on the radio here. It's to basically get you all to slow down. Slow down. Listen, there's a lot of people out there that are supposedly really popular, but just because somebody's popular, doesn't mean that they're teaching you the truth. It does. I see. I, listen. I don't care if the person is Al Mohler, Chris Rosebro, Rick Warren, David Crank, Stephen Furtick, Perry. You know, it doesn't matter. All of us. Every the one thing that that everybody in that group has in common is that we're all sinners, and so each and every one of us is capable of really you know biffing it and in, in in big ways. Um, and so the idea here is is that everybody is to be held accountable to the Word of God. The Word of God is not held accountable to me or to Al Mohler or Rick Warren or whatever. So the question is, are these popular teachers teaching you what God's Word says? Are they teaching you what the what the church has historically taught, believed and confessed from its beginning? And see, by the way, the reason I put it that way is because well, Christ himself said the gates of hell would never prevail against the church. Now, does that mean that uh, Satan doesn't give it a good college try? Well, no, he does. He does try to give it a good college time, a try. And there's been times when Christianity, or historic orthodoxy, has been on the ropes. But then God, the Holy Spirit, swoops in and you know and fixes things. And so, now listen. I don't know if if uh, Christ is going to fix things and we're going to turn this thing around. Or if this is going to be basically the long, slow glide into oblivion, right? <laughs> you know, in the great apostasy prior to the return of Christ. I don't know. I just, I see. Listen, I'm not William Tapley, and when it comes to this eschatology stuff, you know, I listen. Jesus is coming back, okay? And I know that it's going to get bad before he returns. And as far as I'm concerned, you look outside there and you go, "It's bad," okay? <laughs> So what does that mean to me? He can show up anytime. He's and he's welcome to. I'd be really thrilled if Jesus would show up. It it's just like, you know, I'm in mid forties and I'm already going, I'm ready to go home. I know that sounds fatalistic. It's not what I'm trying to do here. I you know, the the passage that comes to mind is Genesis chapter forty seven. 
um, when when uh, Israel, Jacob, uh, meets Pharaoh for the first time. This is uh, not Joseph, but Jacob, you know, after Jacob reveals who he, 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 the whole story. But uh, Pharaoh asks him, you know, uh, how many are the days of the years of your life? And uh, Israel says to Pharaoh, he says, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Few and evil. And he he was 130, and he was saying few and evil. And he, and he was right. Joseph's right. And when he talks about his the years of his sojourning. Folks, listen. Okay, at the end of the day, none of the little things that you, that you have in front of you right now are, and are touching, whether it's your desk, your computer, your iPhone, your iPad, your 56-inch plasma screen TV or or even your collection of mem uh, of you know sports memorabilia any you, none of that's going with you not not a single it, you're sojourning here this planet it ain't home this is not home we're sojourning here and th we're sojourning for lack of a better way of putting it in the valley of the shadow of death th th this life is difficult hard short and just mean and i mean that as mean as in like it's difficult it's difficult and you think well my life's okay at the moment just wait give it a day or two it'll, it'll turn around but <laughs> the, 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 but the idea here is this is that you know if you think about just recall you know and think about the fact that you're passing through What's important is that there's a day coming when Christ is going to return to judge the living and the dead. There is a day coming when all of this nonsense, political and spiritual, is all going to come to an end because Jesus is going to appear in the clouds of the sky and he's going to, the archangel is going to be blowing a trumpet and Jesus is basically going to say, enough. That's it. The, you know. <laughs> The, da, da, the end. Da, 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 da. Okay, the fat lady's going to sing. It's going to be the end, okay? And so that being the case, look around you. Your neighbors, do they know the good news that Christ died for them? Do they know the truth? Um, your friends who are going to that church, big box church down the street, who aren't being told the truth, do they actually know the biblical good news? You know, we got, you know, what did Jesus say? The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send harvesters into his harvest field. That is what we need right now. And, uh, you know, and it is always encouraging to me when I get an email from somebody who, you know, they've been listening to the program. They never knew just how bad the deception was going on in their church. Their eyes were open, and now they're reaching out to the, the people they know and love to reach them with the gospel, with the good news of Jesus Christ. It's great stuff. Anyway, I'm rambling on my monologue today. I apologize for the rambling. I do that from time to time. Just well, because I'm in, I'm creeping decrepitude. You know, that's what happens. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Because yeah, we're going to have to do a lot of biblical teaching today. I'm looking at the list here, going, wow. Okay, we're going to start off a little bit easy. Okay, <laughs> we got a David Crank update. Now, I, I have not got David Crank update music. I'm going to have to think about this. Okay. Um, you know, he is a televangelist type. I might just throw in our televangelist money grubbing, you know, televangelist update music, you know, to start it off. But I, it's going to take some thought to think about what would be the best appropriate music to go with David and his wife, Nicole. 
Um, anyway, the name of the video is called Hold On to Your Dream. <laughs> Which might, might, yeah, well, it makes me think. Maybe I can think of a, you know, something along those lines. Anyway, and then I've got a uh, an emergent update. Yeah, kind of a seeker-driven emergent church in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota called Safe House Church. They, they've got a video out there that you've got to hear to believe and which will, well, actually hearing might cause you to disbelieve. <laughs> Yeah, I'll explain that when we get there. I've I got part two of the uh, the Furtick, uh piece that I was doing on Friday. I did part one today. I'm going to do part two. And, uh, you know, I think I named the edition Furtick Misses the Point of Scripture again. This one, I, I'll call it something slightly different. Furtick biblically biffs it again. It, and this this biff by uh, Stephen Furtick is actually pretty frightening. And then our sermon review today, we're going to be going to Northview Church in Carmel, Indiana. That's in my neck of the woods. And I'm very familiar with this church because they have a really nice disc golf course on their property. Um, but uh, the uh, the name of the uh, sermon is Jerks of the Bible Pharaoh. So they're, it's apparently this is a sermon to teach you how to not be a jerk by looking at Jerks of the Bible. Poor old Pharaoh, you know, he's a jerk of the Bible. And another example of completely missing the point. It's just absolutely breathtaking to me. They got these people with open Bibles who they are, they are completely oblivious to what these passages are about, who these passages are about. Anyway, so uh, I think we're going to have to just dive into the program proper. And so uh, this will be my substitute music, kind of ad hoc music for uh, David Crank today. But I, again, I, if you have any ideas about uh, music that I could use if I do a David Crank or Nicole Crank update, it would uh, really help me. But uh, let's dive into the program proper. Here we go. shop boys uh, <clears throat> opportunities let's make lots of money i usually use that music when we're dealing with somebody who is a tbn televangelist type and wouldn't you know it uh, david crank is just one of those types he's one of those televangelists he's from st louis missouri from faith church there and anyway he recently put out a video uh, called hold on to your dream hold on to your dream Hmm. Let's see if any of this makes any biblical sense to you. Uh, here's David Crank. He, by the way, just to let you know the setting for the video, 
um, I, I consider these one of these kill two birds with one stone kind of videos. You know, give some, you know, basically stroke somebody's ego, make them feel good about themselves, while at the same time announcing the construction or talking about the progress on the construction on the latest building project. He's got a building project going on in the background behind them. They're doing. You know, an upgrade to their facility, and while it just doesn't look good because of all the construction, that becomes the metaphor for the hold on to your dream message here from David Crank. Here we go. Hello to all my Facebook and Twitter friends. I'm out here in front of our Sunset Hills campus. We have Sunset Hills in Earth City, and this place looks like a mess. I mean, it's embarrassing. In fact, I think people, when they're driving... Really? It's embarrassing when, obviously, you can see the construction equipment in front... Yeah, oh, it's so embarrassing having construction equipment in front of our building project. Yeah, I, I'm not buying that. Buy right now, probably. Don't even think that we're having church in here. And uh, it's going to look better soon. In fact, there's a shot of what it's going to look like. Yeah, nice, nice. It's just going to look like a really large Starbucks. There's been many times in my life when it looked about like that. But I held on to the dream that it was going to look like this. Oh, see, yeah, see, there's times in my life when my life looked like it was under construction, but I held on to the dream, and and now it looks like this. Are you in one of those moments right now where things look a little bad, the business looks a little down, the marriage looks a little tough, the ministry doesn't seem to be growing like it should? If you're there, you're in a great spot because you're asking questions. You're looking and saying, wait a minute, Rome wasn't built in a day. The Bible said the faithful man shall abound in blessing. Oh, the faithful man. So you just need to be obedient so that you can abound in blessing. Law. You said you'll wax strong. I want to encourage you, if there's an area of your life that's a little embarrassing, you hold up that big old blueprint in front of everybody and say, you know what, I know where I'm going, and I know how I'm going to get there, and it's going to take a crew of people, and it's a big machinery, but I am going to see the end result come to manifestation in my life. Mm, yeah, I'm going to see the result come to manifestation in my life. Boy, if this isn't narcissism, I just don't know what is. This is, by the way, the 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 message that Christ has given the church to proclaim. Look at the look it up. It's the Gospel of Luke, chapter twenty four. Right there at the end, Jesus says, "In repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in His name to all nations, starting in Jerusalem." Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. So, if your life is looking like a mess. Oh, no, you don't need to repent. You just need to go look at the blueprint and say, I know where I'm going. And I just got to have faith to get there because, right, I see it's it's not that I'm a sinner who needs to be to, to repent and be forgiven. No, 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 no. There's just construction going on for the big grand plan so that I can aboundeth much. So it's just a quick encouragement to you to let you know whatever you're going through, number one, you're going to go through. Number two, we walk by faith and not by sight. So keep your eyes on the prize. Where you want to be, you're going to get there. You just got just engage in positive confession, visual um, meditation. Picture it in your mind. Get a firm grasp of it, and then believe for that picture. And see, it'll all happen. Got to keep on keeping on and keep that vision before you. Because remember, without a vision, people perish. Hey, if you enjoy this, Facebook it, Twitter it, share it with your friends. Yeah, I just shared it with all my friends. And uh, <clears throat> not because I liked it, though. <sighs> Man, what has happened to Christianity? Seriously. I mean, that that message is not taught in Scripture. You know, but is it any wonder why... Uh, Churches like Faith Church are growing like crazy, like, well, like weeds. It's because they are weeds. See, the churches like this are the tares 
the devil sows. Yeah, I'm just saying. All right, moving along. These are the sounds of the postmodern emergent Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Doug Paget. Second fiddle tonight is uh, Tony Jones. This is their spiritual homage to um, Strauss's also Sprague Zarathustra. Having been set free from oppressive, modernist definitions of notes, they are now free to let the spirit guide them into a journey of musical genius. Yeah. <laughs> Still one of my... Favorite updates, musics. Okay, so um, what happens when a emergent theology, postmodern liberalism decides that they're going to set up a seeker-driven type church? Well, you make a church of their after their own likings. Well, it becomes known as what's called safe house church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And you're asking, what is safe house? Well, I'm glad you asked. They actually made a video that answers that question. Here we go. For several years now. We've had a nagging suspicion that Christian faith was becoming more and more inaccessible for a large number of people. Oh no, Christianity is becoming inaccessible. <gasps> Gasp, we must save the church from itself then. I hope you've come up with a solution. In 2007, a study was released that revealed that what we were sensing was more than just an intuition. It was a reality. Feeling like they had to choose between a Christian faith known more for what it's against than what it's for, and a Christian faith seemingly stuck in the past? Yeah, you know, that's the last thing you want, is a Christianity stuck in the past. You know, taking the Bible literally, having doctrines and dogma, and, oh, yeah, and even tradition. Oh, you just, none of that. No, I mean, whoa, whoa, these are terrible choices. I mean, we need a Christianity that's more forward-thinking, that is able to just set itself free from the past, right? People were choosing neither. This was my story, too. I felt like to be a Christian, I had to choose between a church that played music that I liked, but held rigid and judgmental beliefs. Oh, no! Rigid... By the way, <clears throat> notice the double standard here. Um, You wouldn't think this guy's rigid and has judgmental beliefs towards those churches that hold judgmental beliefs, do you? and a church that accepted me for who I was and the questions that I had. Right. See, I want a Christianity that accepts me as I am, as a sinner, and leaves me in my sin and doesn't challenge me to repent. No, no, no. I want, I, want I want a Christianity that allows me to redefine Christianity to fit my personal tastes and favorite pet sins and, and make me feel comfortable in my sin even... You know, e even though that's not what the church is supposed to do, I but that see, wouldn't it be great if we can just reach, just recast Christianity, re-envision it, so that 
all of us could just feel comfortable there and never be confronted by the law and doctrines and commandments. No, but we can just be invited to go with God on a on a journey that progresses and and allows me to just reshape Christianity like a balloon animal. But whose practices were entirely foreign to me. Many people feel the same way. What if there was a church that was progressive in its thought and worshipped in a style more similar to what's on our playlists? What if there was a community where we felt comfortable bringing our friends and was deeply concerned about social justice? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying... What if there was a seeker-driven emergent church? Ah, what an idea. That we need to throw out everything that's come before. But what if there was a place that drew on these different streams of Christian faith and created something unique, something that valued our spiritual journeys too. That valued, see, you see, the church doesn't value anyone else's spiritual journey unless they cater to their unique individual perspectives on their spiritual journey. So here's where Safe House Church comes in. Maybe you've never been to church, or you never planned on coming back. Either way, we understand. We do our best to talk about God and faith everyday language without being patronizing with thoughtful and progressive teaching thoughtful and progressive teaching right yeah not biblical but thoughtful progressive we'll challenge you to find and live out your faith in the world. find your faith and then live it out wow mine was hiding under a mushroom who knew and with that our worship is done in a way that you can simply sit listen and observe if that's what you need to do but when you're ready we hope that you'll find our worship environment an inviting, sacred space to connect with God. Sacred space where I can connect with God, right? Yeah. My Without repenting or believing anything. Passion is for creating these spaces yeah. where a community can focus on God. And in an Which God, by the way? Environment that values excellence. Excellence in what? Creating and participating in worship that is both truthful and culturally engaged. Truthful and culturally engaged. What does that mean? It's not a play on your emotions. And it's not a show to make us look cool. We're about passionate, creative worship of God. Passionate, creative worship. God who is infinitely both of those things. Ah. Now, while I've spent the last few moments talking about the gatherings at Safe House, that's not all that we're about. Church isn't a building or a business. It's a community of people pursuing God together. Mm, church is a community of people commu pursuing God together. Okay. So is it like one of those street chases and like, you know, the detective movies? Our community is here for people who find themselves excluded from the church for whatever reason. Right. You know, you do know that biblically some people should be excluded, right? Maybe you have questions and doubts about faith and are frustrated because the church you know doesn't seem particularly interested in dealing with them. Maybe you're a member of the LGBT community, and like me, you've been left out of the church because of your sexual orientation. No, 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 no. If, um, if you're an unrepentant um, homosexual, or somebody who practices homosexual intercourse, or, you know, entertains those types of thoughts, and you're unrepentant, then you're not forgiven, and that requires church discipline. Not acceptance, but challenging and rebuking you to repent 
so that you can be forgiven because that's a sin. Sin sin is not freedom. Sin is slavery. Your gender identity. Maybe you're simply skeptical that faith and church could ever have meaning for you again. Safe House Church is a community of people asking questions, pursuing God in a safe environment. Asking questions and pursuing God in a safe environment. This is the Emergent Church 2.0. It's the same thing. Wow, we're just going to sit around and ask questions because that's what postmoderns do. They don't make assertions. Their humble, humble hermeneutic requires them to sit and ask questions. Certainty is evil. Doubt is good. And discovering Jesus, many of us for the first time. Ultimately, Safe House Church is the dream of a vibrant Christian community that changes the world by the way we live. What makes you guys Christian again? Oh, yeah, you, you change the world by the way you live. Yeah, uh-huh. A people who follow Jesus and embody his love. Church should be a place that challenges us to think deeply, to hope, and to serve others. We should be a people that embraces the outsider and the outcast and radically transforms the world. There's nothing new here. This is just the same old emergent stuff. Packaged, you know, kind of a lot more along the lines of, you know, a seeker-driven church plant in Minneapolis, Minnesota. At Safe House, you'll find people who love sharing meals together, who walk through challenging times with one another. How much do you want to bet that some of the folks there at Safe House have spent some time over at Solomon's Porch? Just saying. And who just enjoy being together. So, the question remains, is Safe House Church where you're supposed to be? No. Not if you're a Christian. Um, Safe House Church sounds like a hotbed of, well, postmodern heresy. The best way to figure that out is to join us on Sunday evening. No, that's not the way to figure anything out. It, I can tell from the video you guys ain't biblical and that you're going to be monkeying with the biblical text because, well, there's some pretty obvious reasons to think so. Things for one of our gatherings or shoot one of our pastors an email. We'd love to take you out for a coffee or a beer. And hear more about your story. Progressive teaching, attractional gatherings, missional community, and people in the process. This is Safe House Church. It's not a church. Yikes. So the emergent church, um, it's not dead. It's very much alive. It's just not calling itself emergent or postmodern. It's just all the same stuff being repackaged in an attractional, seeker-driven package now. Anyone surprised? I'm not. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> It's... My 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. McLaren dribbles a pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards, and then passes to Padgett in left field. But wait, Bulls Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Padgett are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Padgett grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slap shots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe. He's safe. That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com, I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. All right, we're back. Uh, warning, you don't get to make up your own Christianity and then call it Christianity. Christianity is a revealed religion. The faith once delivered to the saints, you don't get to add your two cents. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. Click on one of them. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. And just a reminder that we're still selling our T-shirts for our summer bake sale to help us get through the lean, mean, financially thin summer months. If you haven't already picked up your Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt, visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and uh, get yours today. Okay, moving along. Stephen Furtick update, part two. so vain you probably think the bible's about you yeah considering the fact that stephen furtick is like the king of the narcissists narcissistic eisegesis that's kind of a squished together term there if you're new to fighting for the faith um all right so this is part two part two of what uh, you know i told you this would be a two-part thing now this is going to take some biblical teaching open up your bible to matthew chapter 25 i might have to go into 24 to help with the context okay I just want to warn you about that. Now, the the section of scripture that he's going to be, you know, you know that he used for this you know, part of the sermon. This is all from the same sermon we were taking pieces of last week. But uh, this, this is a tough section of scripture, and it's easy to get wrong. Okay, which is all the more reason why if your pastor hasn't taken, well, hasn't excelled in um, biblical hermeneutics. 
uh, you know, at, you know, at least on a, you know, a recognized college graduate or college or graduate level, he probably ought not to be teaching because the scriptures say this, that a pastor or you know, one who wants to be in that office has to study and show himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who rightly handles the word of truth. This is what scripture says. So if a pastor can't rightly handle the word of truth, he's not qualified to be a pastor, even if he's a nice guy, even if he's really relevant, even if he's really popular, even if he has a big mega church, even if he has a Justin Bieber haircut, it doesn't matter. If he can't handle the word of God correctly and rightly divide it and teach sound doctrine, he ain't qualified to be a pastor. And if you disagree with me, tough. Take it up with God the Holy Spirit because God the Holy Spirit is the one who laid down these qualifications. When you win that argument, come back and talk to me. You, you get what I'm saying? Anyway, to, now what I'm going to do here is I'm going to play this just a smidge out of context. I want you to hear the punchline that made me want to review this section. Here's Stephen Furtick from his uh, Room 101 Fear's Greatest Hits sermon. And uh, this is kind of the punchline of you know that he misses the point on regarding the parable of the talents. Listen to this and tell me if if you detect a problem. Here we go. Because God doesn't, God doesn't judge your life based on what you did. He judges it based on what you did in comparison to what he called you to do. Okay, so God doesn't judge your life <laughs> based on what you did, but in comparison to what he called you to do. Now, as is, is odd as this is going to sound, I'm going to completely agree with Stephen Furtick here. And you're going, well, if you're agreeing with him, why are you playing this? Just work with me here. Hold on a second here. I completely agree with, with Stephen Furtick here. God is going to judge your life, not by what you did per se, but in comparison to what he called you to do. Completely agree. So that now leads to the question, okay? Where do I go to find out what God has called me to do? Okay, now, Furtick, well, he jumps the tracks here and wrecks the train with this next statement. He ain't going to judge me one day on how big my church was. He's going to judge me one day, you know, compared to the other churches in, in the world. He's going to judge me based on what I called you to do. Did you do it all? Okay, so apparently he's talking about individual revelation. I mean, there's apparently there's some, there's some secret destiny or purpose that God wants to reveal to you. And God's going to judge your life by what you did, not by what you did, but in comparison to what he called you to do. I would completely disagree with that, by the way. The Bible does not teach that God has some secret plan for your life, some secret purpose that you need to fulfill. And then God's going to judge you based upon whether or not you fulfilled that purpose. By the way, is that law or is it gospel? You're thinking, well, let me think about that. What do you mean by law? Well, is it something that you have to do, or does it announce to you what God has done for you? Gospel is an announcement, a proclamation of what God has done for you. Law is a command that tells you what you ought to do. Okay. By the way, nobody's saved by keeping the law, not one single person. So now I'm doing this out of order, and I understand that, but I, I, want, to, I want you to get this. Okay. Now, so... Here's the statement I agree with. God doesn't judge your life by what you did, and I'm going to say with an asterisk, but in comparison to what he called you to do. So where do I find what God has called me to do? Where can I find this information? <gasps> I know, the Bible. Right. Okay, now, let's let's take a look at your life, and we're going to spend just a little bit of time 
Okay, now here, so here's the question. Here's the standard. This is what God has called you to do, and God's going to judge you in comparison to what he's called you to do. Because here's the deal. If it's in the scripture, it's, it's what, what God is calling us to do. So here we go. First commandment. You shall have no other gods. Have you committed idolatry? Think of it this way. Whatever you fear, love, and trust in above God, that's your God. Okay? Having false doctrine regarding God is makes you guilty of the sin of idolatry. You shall that would be basically believing in the God of your own imagination, your own concocted God. Okay, so so ha, you shall have no other gods. Next, uh, you shall not misuse or take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Yeah, th- here's the idea behind that. You don't want to curse or swear, use satanic arts, lie or deceive by God's name. So. Are you teaching false doctrine? That's, you know, it's somebody who teaches false doctrine is breaking this commandment. Um, instead, you want to call on God's name and uh, you call on God in every trouble. You pray, you praise, you give thanks. Next, uh, remember the Sabbath day. Keep it holy. Do you, uh, so here's the idea. Um, do you uh, fear and love God so that you don't despise the preaching and teaching and hearing of God's word, but instead you hold God's word sacred and you gladly hear and learn it. Is That's the idea here. So, I mean, uh, on Sunday morning, are you sleeping in? Or are you just excited to go and hear God's word? Next one, honor your father and your mother. So do you fear and love God so that you do not despise or anger your parents? or other authorities, but instead do you honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them? Next, you shall not murder. Do you fear and love God so that you don't hurt or harm your neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need? Next commandment, you shall not commit adultery. We should fear and love God. So do you fear and love God so that you lead a sexually pure and decent life? in what you say and what you do and in husband and wife love and honor each other. Yeah. Keep in mind here, you're sitting there going, well, I haven't physically committed uh, um, a sin, you know, adultery against my spouse. Uh-huh. And let's talk about, are you lusting after people who are not your spouse? Are you spending time on the internet looking at porn? Yeah, well, if you are, then, well, you're guilty of breaking this commandment. You shall not steal. So do you fear and love God so that you do not take your neighbor's money or his possessions or get them in any dishonest way? Instead, do you help and improve and protect your neighbor uh, regarding his possessions and his income? How about the next commandment? You should not give false testimony against your neighbor. Uh, Do you fear and love God so that you do not tell lies about your neighbor, betray him or slander him uh, or hurt his reputation, but defend him, speak well of him and explain everything in the kindest way? How are you doing on that? How about coveting your neighbor's house or coveting your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his maidservant or anything that belongs to your neighbor? Do you covet? Is the grass greener on the other side? Do you wish that you had the latest and greatest version of a computer or are you jealous and covet your neighbor's car or his wife, things that don't belong to you? Well, see, remember, okay, the, the, the statement I made was, God doesn't judge your life by what you did, this is a verdict statement, but in comparison to what he called you to do. So the Bible clearly tells you what you're called to do. So how do you think you're going to stand on the day of judgment? How's it looking for you?
Does it look good? I mean, are you going? Are are you keeping those? Now, keep in mind, I, I forgot to mention something, and that's this: one transgression, one, is enough to damn you. It's absolutely true. So, um, it's not you, you've got you, when you stand before God on the day of judgment. If you want to be declared righteous, you have to actually keep this perfectly. So remember, Stephen Furtick said, God doesn't judge your life by what you did, but in comparison to what he called you to do, and we can go to the Bible to look at what God has called us to do. How are you doing on that? How are you doing? Yeah, probably not so good, right? Let me read to you uh, Galatians chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, counted as righteousness. So know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, that means to declare righteous, the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on on works of the law are under a curse. That's Galatians 3.10. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified. That means to be declared righteous before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Mm Mm-hmm. Moving forward just a little bit, Galatians 3.23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, here's the idea. If you plan on standing before God on the day of judgment and somehow survive based upon how you lived in comparison to what he called you to do, That's the law. And what Furtick here is referring to is not the Ten Commandments, but some specific, unique vision for your life that God is calling to you to do that only you can hear the voice of God in order to hear. And you've got to overcome your fear so that you, you do that thing. And keep in mind, he's making it clear that God is going to judge you if you don't do that. So with that in mind, keep in mind, scriptures make it perfectly clear. If God judges you based upon what he's called you to do in comparison to your life, you will for sure, most assuredly, 
under no, you know, let there be no vagaries here. You will go to hell. You cannot live up to the law and the standard to which God has called you to do. You need a savior. That's why Jesus Christ offers forgiveness of sins and salvation to all who believe. Okay. Now with that, let's hear what Stephen Furtick does with this. Um, here we go. Um, there's a passage of scripture. I love this scripture also. And again, I'd preach on it at a, at a deeper level if I had time. Oh, by the way, he, he pre- see, he, he's got this wonderful passage of scripture. He would preach about it on a deeper level if he had time. I mean, isn't that weird that a pastor's so busy that he doesn't have time to preach God's word at a deeper level? Strange indeed. Um, Daniel, uh, the boys, uh, the three Hebrew boys in Daniel chapter 3, they all lived and it was awesome. Just in case you're wondering. And Nebuchadnezzar was like, oh man, God is awesome. That's how that one ends. But in Matthew 25, there's this um, parable that Jesus tells about uh, a man who gives some money to his servants. And he wants, and and the, the unit of money is called a talent. And and so he, he goes away on a long journey, and he's like, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to want to see what you did with my, my money. Well, there was one guy he gave five talents to, and that guy brought him ten back. He said, hey, man, I, did, I, did, I think I did pretty good. I don't know what you're expecting, but <laughs> he gave me five. Here's ten. And the master is like, I like that. I like that initiative. That's great. Second guy has two talents. He brings him back four, and the master is like, where are my ten talents? That other guy brought me ten. What are you doing? No, he didn't do that. He said, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. Because God doesn't, God doesn't judge your life based on what you did. He judges it based on what you did in comparison to what he called you to do. Yeah. And, and again, I would, sure, absolutely. So let's look at the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Because you know, that's a clear word of God. He's going to judge me one day on how big my church was. He's going to judge me one day, you know, compared to the other churches in, in the world. He's going to judge me based on what I called you to do. Did you do it all? And if I didn't, if I let fear imprison me at some point, then I missed an opportunity to be used by God. Now, I, I want to point this out, okay? And I might come back to it because here he's playing fast and loose with this biblical text. And the reason I say that is now I told you to have your Bible open. If you have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 25, let's take a look at this, at the punchline to this parable, okay? And you'll notice that he's not applying the punchline of this parable to himself, okay? And uh, let's see here. Um, Yeah, here it is. Uh, It's verse 28. I'll start right. Matthew 25, verse 28. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents, for to everyone who has it will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm going to make something very clear here. Okay, This parable, the parable of the talents that appears in Matthew 25, comes after Jesus' teaching regarding the end of the world, okay, in the Olivet Discourse, okay? And there's three parables that he tells, the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and then the parable of the sheep and the goat judgments, which really doesn't read much like a parable, but kind of sounds a lot like what's really going to go down. All of them are word pictures of the day of judgment. Okay? So here, you know, he says he's teaching from Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, 
and he's not even correctly pointing out the punchline. So I have to back up the audio just a smidge so that you can hear what he's doing with this. Okay, so God's going to judge him uh, based upon what he's called him to do. But what does that judgment look like? Well, if you don't fulfill it, watch how he shaves off the punchline here. And if I didn't, if I let fear imprison me at some point, then I missed an opportunity to be used by God. But yeah, if I let fear imprison me, then I missed an opportunity to be used by God. That's not what this parable says. Using your interpretation, if you don't live up to what God's called you to do, it's not that you just missed an opportunity. Whoopsie. Oh, I missed an opportunity. Ah, I'll try harder next time. No, the punchline of this parable is that you're going to be cast into hell. He'll even read this section of it, but what he, notice what he's doing. He's allegorizing the text in such a way that we're losing the punchline that Jesus is specifically trying to get across. So let's continue. But here's the part I want to read to you. There was one man who got one talent, one talent. And, you know, it's, it's kind of indicative of all of us who maybe there's people in here who what God's calling you to do isn't to step out and do some, you know, missionary endeavor for God or, you know, something that we would call big. But he's trying to shift something in your mind to live your life with that sense of faith. Remember, I, I said the first week of the series that it's not the big wave that kills a lot of people in the ocean. It's the undercurrent. It's the day to day that, that keeps us from really living. Well, this, this man with one talent in Matthew 25, verse 24, Bible says the man who had received the one talent came and he said, Master, I knew that you're a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was, what's the word? Afraid. I was afraid. And I, and I went out. And I took your talent and I spent it on some a bulletproof vest so nobody would get me and take it. He didn't do that. That would have been misappropriation. He didn't, he didn't steal the master's talent. He said, I hid it. I was afraid, so I went out and I hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. And he thought he did all right. He thought he was responsible. Thought he was reasonable. Thought he was using wisdom. And the master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. That's not the response he was expecting, I assure you. Well, I didn't steal anything. Here it is back, didn't you hear? Let me start over. Master, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown. That's your problem right there from the beginning. You got the wrong view of the master. You're going to do the wrong thing with what he gave you. Now, this is absolutely true. Okay, this is really about having the right view of the master. That really is a key component of understanding this parable. Now, I'll, I'll unpack it for you here in a second. So here's the idea. Furtick is, he's getting warmer, but he, what he said is all law. This is a works-based religion that he's preaching. A works-based religion that basically says, God's got some special purpose for you. He's going to reveal it to you, and he's going to judge your life based upon that, that individual unique purpose. Okay? We continue. That's why we learned that perfect love casts out fear. And we're not scared of God anymore. 
We have a fear of ever being outside of his protection. So all we want to do is just stay in a place where we're being obedient to him and then leaving the outcome to him. But what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? Stay in a place where we're obedient. Good luck on that. You aren't obedient even for a nanosecond of your life. Literally. Well, yeah, that would and that would and that would and that would. But God is, and, 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 and because of who he is, no matter what he does or does not do, I've got a faith in who he is. That's a faith you can depend on. So, so he said, I hit it, and the, and, the, and the master said, you're wicked and you're lazy. I get tired of people saying, well, God, God's not concerned about money. You know, like people that don't really like the church, skeptics and critics. It sounds like to me he's pretty concerned about it. He called this guy wicked and lazy. Well, listen, what else he said? Notice the dig there on money. You got to tie. That's important to Furtick. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him. Give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there he just read the text. This is about the final judgment, about salvation, damnation or salvation, hell or heaven. Should I have stopped the sermon about seven minutes ago? You told me I could do this part. No, but I want to bring out a point is that the devil always tries to get us to focus on what if I, I do what God's calling me to do and it, and it fails. Individual revelation, not what's in the word of God. Fails, it backfires or it's hard or it's challenging or it's uncomfortable. But one thing about a record that you need to know if you're not familiar with, with this format of music, it's got two sides to it. <laughs> it's got two sides to it. And so one thing you can do when, when the devil's doing that what if thing, what if, what if, what if, what if, trying to keep you from obeying God, you know, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if you waste your whole life staying in this marriage and you miss out on all the other people who could have loved you and you give your whole life and your husband never changes and you keep loving, what if, what if, what if, I think what you got to do is you got to look at the flip side as well because we all think about the cost of stepping out in faith. But when's the last time that you calculated the cost of staying locked in fear? It cost this man with the one talent a whole lot more. Yeah, eternity in hell. Because of his fear. No, actually, no, not because of his fear per se. We'll, we'll unpack this in a second. Then it would have cost him, even if he'd lost everything in faith. So... What if I do what God's telling me to do and it's hard? What if you don't do what God's telling you to do? It's going to be a lot harder. Yeah, it's called hell. The text is teaching that the consequence is hell. But he's not closing the circle here. He's at this point backing off from the text in order to be uh, not really drive home that point hard. Yeah, what if, teenagers, what if I take the stand for Christ and my friends don't don't accept me anymore. What if you're more concerned about your friends accepting you than you are about having a relationship with the God who made you and you end up in a place where seven years from your life you're still scratched by a regret of something dumb you did because of a fear that you didn't even have to succumb to to begin with. See, there's another side. Yeah, but the flip side from that passage is an eternity in hell. To our fears. 
You got to flip it over. See it from the other side too. All right, we're going to stop the uh, the sermon right there. So here's the deal. Here's this. God doesn't judge your life by what you did, but in comparison to what he called you to do, but what he called you to do is clearly spelled out in scripture. And when we look at that, we realize you are, you and I both are in, well, all of us are in deep kimchi. Romans chapter three. Now here's the idea. Scripture interprets scripture. Okay. Now these parables can be tough to unpack, but these are parables about the last judgment. So let's look at a theological section of the New Testament that lays out how salvation works, what gets you in and what keeps you out, okay? So that that becomes a governing principle as we look at this parable, and then all of a sudden you'll see it. Okay, watch. Okay, Romans chapter 3, okay? Um, Yeah, in fact, let me, uh, Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Well, no, not at all. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, that's the final verdict. All of us, none of us is is righteous, not even one. You, me, nobody. Okay? Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being, not one, will be justified. That means to be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Primary purpose of the law is to show you your wretched, sinful condition. And there's not one human being, not one person who will be declared righteous in God's sight by keeping the law. Romans 3.21. But now the righteousness of God, the diakasune to theu, this is God's righteousness, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So what then becomes of our boasting? Well, boasting is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, declared righteous by faith, apart from works of the law. Okay? These are clear, unambiguous statements. Anybody who is saved is saved purely as a gift by grace through faith, by believing and trusting in God 
for Christ's sake, for the forgiveness of sins. Plain and simple, okay? You can't earn it. It's only a gift to be received. That's it, okay? Now, that becomes the governing principle then. Salvation is by grace through faith. God doesn't contradict himself, and God doesn't lie. And God the Holy Spirit inspired both Matthew and Paul to write what they wrote. And Jesus is the one telling these parables. So, now let's take, let's test this out then, okay? Matthew 25, verse 1, the parable of the ten virgins. Watch how this plays out, okay? The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgin who, virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going out to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you knew neither the day nor the hour. Okay, now, this is a parable of judgment, talking about the great last day when Christ appears in glory, right? So we got five wise, five foolish. Five virgins have oil, five virgins don't, and they fall asleep and then are wake, waked up. Woken up, right? Got to work on my grammar. So here's the idea. Falling asleep, it's death. Okay? The ones, the virgins who have oil are the ones who have faith. The ones who believe and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of, the, of their sins. The five who do not, they don't have faith. Therefore, they don't have oil for their lamps, right? And when Jesus appears, who is the bridegroom, on that great and last day, they're saying, give us oil, but you can't give your faith to somebody else, right? Your faith can't be given to anybody else. And so on that great and terrible day, the foolish virgins head the wrong direction, away from the bridegroom, away from the feast, because they don't have faith. And the doors... Of the, of the feast are closed to them, and Christ says, I never knew you. Right? Salvation by grace through faith. Clear passages govern unclear. Now, the same rule of faith, if you would, applies here to the parable of the talents. For it will be like a man going on a journey, this is verse 14, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. By the way, servants is so weak here. I would say slaves. Okay, the Greek here is, it's a man going away on a journey who calls his slaves and entrusted to them his property. I mean, this is a great honor. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to his ability. No instructions, by the way. No instructions. Then he went away 
He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had, who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid, and hid his master's money. Okay? Can you guess which of the people in this story have faith? Which of these ones in the story trust in their merciful, kind, loving, forgiving, and gracious master? Answer, the two who took his talents and went and, and traded with them, right? Exactly. They believed that their master was good and gracious. They weren't, they weren't fearful at all. They risked everything the master gave them. Everything. Right? But then there's this other guy. Okay? But he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing more, five more talents, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five more. Look at how excited he is. There's no fear. There's no fear of judgment. No fear of his master at all. Why? Because he has faith, right? Scripture interprets scripture. Okay. His master has said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Okay. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said, Great job. Well done. You've been faithful over a little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now they're not saved by their works because scripture says, by works of the law, no one is saved. How is it that they did these good works? See, you can't truly do a good work until you have faith. You truly do not even know how to begin to do a good work until you first and foremost understand that you have a gracious, merciful, kind, forgiving um, master, Jesus, God, right? Oh, Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Only a person who believes and trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins will be able to stand on the day of judgment, not in fear, but in excitement. Excitement to see the master. Excitement on the day of judgment. Notice here on the day of judgment, they're not, they don't have their hats in their hands, shaking like the cowardly lying. Oh, no, what am I going to do? I got to go back to Jesus. <laughs> They can't wait to get in there. Why? Because they know they have a merciful, kind, loving, forgiving, gracious master. You can only know that when you understand the gospel and you believe, right? But the one who doesn't know the gospel, doesn't believe the gospel, they're afraid of God. They have the wrong idea of him altogether. We continue. So his master said to him, well done. Verse 24, he who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here's what is yours. 
But his master answered him, You wicked, slothful servant. You knew I reap where I do not sow, gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with my with interest. So take the talent from him, give it to the one who has ten talents, for to everyone who has will more be given, and he who and he will have an abundance. From the one who has not even what he has will be taken away. From the one who has will be given more. Has what? Right? And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you think that this... Well, here's the idea. This parable doesn't teach salvation by works because Scripture cannot contradict itself. Scripture does not contradict itself. The, the two servants who did business with their master's talents, they had faith. They believed in a good and gracious master, and they were joyful to meet him on his, at his coming. They were not afraid. The other was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because he had no faith, and he didn't believe God to be good, merciful, kind, just. That's what kept him from, quote, doing business. He had no faith. So I read again, for we hold that, one is justified, that is declared righteous by faith, apart from works of the law. The ones who had the talents, they were not saved by their reproduction, by their work, but they worked because they had faith. Without faith, Hebrews 11.6 says, it is impossible, absolutely impossible, to please God. You see, Furtick doesn't understand the biblical gospel. He doesn't. He doesn't get it. That's why he makes statements basically encouraging folks, God doesn't judge your life by what you did, but in comparison to what he's called you to do. And by making such a statement, he hasn't given them the gospel, hasn't given them Christ, hasn't given them the forgiveness of sins. He's basically made God out to be the meanie bad guy so that on the day of judgment, the folks at Elevation Church will not be able to stand before God in joy, but instead in fear. Very sad and tragic. He's teaching a form of works righteousness. Make no mistake about it. That's exactly what he's doing. All right. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We come back, sermon review time. Another sermon that misses the whole point of the Bible. Apparently about jerks of the Bible. Pharaoh being a jerk. I'm talking about missing the point. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. 
From the creators who brought you Bible Pants and Vision Lax comes the brand new super special awesome comedy album of the 21st century. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater at the Budgie Cuts. Part 2. We here at Pirate Christian Studios have been hard at work crafting this album for maximum quality and hilarity. You'll cry. You'll laugh. You'll scream. And you'll have uncontrollable flatulence. Just stick to the script, please. So sorry, um... Buy it now while stocks last. They download it. There is no supply which to run out. Oh, so you mean they can just go right onto iTunes and download it? Yes. Like right now? If they want to, yes. Oh. Well, the heck with this commercial. I'm off to buy it right now. Get back here! We're not done yet! Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater, The Buddy Cuts Part 2. Disapproved of by Heretics Everywhere. Get it before they do. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Talk about missing the point of the Bible. Man. By the way, when you preach the law as the solution to mankind's problem, you leave people dead in trespasses and sins and basically on the express elevator to hell. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Northview Church, Carmel, Indiana. Not too far from where I'm at. The name of this sermon is Jerks of the Bible. And this one's uh, entitled Pharaoh. So the sermon series is Jerks of the Bible. This one's about Pharaoh. And uh, this is uh, Stan Killebrew, or Kilbrew presiding. Oh, man, this is a train wreck of a sermon, too. Listen for the proper distinction of law and gospel. And uh, you'll see that there is no proper distinction of law and gospel, and you're going to find out that the solution to you being a jerk is to, well, just commit yourself to not being a jerk, which is all law, no gospel. And it misses the whole point of the story of the showdown between Yahweh and Pharaoh. I'll explain as we go. In fact, let me just uh, kill the music, and we'll dive right into the sermon proper. So without any further ado, here is Stan Kilbrew, Northview Church, Carmel, Indiana, Jerks of the Bible, Pharaoh. Here we go. Uh, we are continuing in this Jerks of the Bible series this weekend. This is week six, Jerks in the Bible. Basically, the idea is how not to be a jerk as we study some of these key characters uh, in our Bible. Don't miss next weekend. Come back next weekend. We're going to conclude the series uh, with uh, Jerks of the Bible. It's going to be actually on Jezebel. I don't know about you, but Jezebel actually sounds like a jerk to me. Just when you say that name, it sounds like a jerk. So don't miss next weekend. Uh, I want to make a special welcome to our West Lafayette campus. It's great to be with you guys this weekend uh, as well. So the jerk we're going to study this weekend is Pharaoh. 
And if you want to go there with me, I am actually in Exodus chapter 4, beginning with verse 21 right now. I would encourage you, you could follow along with me if you'd like. There are some seats here in the Carmel campus. Please go there yourself. uh, You're sitting on uh, in our West Lafayette campus. I believe there's some. Yeah, if you got your Bible, go there. And grab one and uh, bring it up with you if you'd like. We're going to spend a fair amount of time reading and studying in this chunk of Scripture, Exodus chapter 4. But before we dive into this, would you join me? In prayer, Would you bow your heads with me? God, we, uh, we pause right now, and we thank you for your scripture. God, it never ceases to amaze me that um, a story that's recorded for us, oh, some 3,500 years ago, is still relevant and fresh for us today. Lord, we believe the scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, where it says that all scripture is God-breathed that's useful for teaching and correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness. And just now, Lord, if any of those things need to happen in my heart and the hearts of those of us who are hearing these words, Lord, I pray that you will do that as we study your word tonight. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Yeah, Pharaoh. This guy was a jerk. I mean, there's the whole forced slavery thing. It's a jerk, right? You think your boss is a jerk. You think you're a slave. Pharaoh actually put the nation of Israel into slavery. And then another Pharaoh, just uh, the next generation, kept them in slavery and put his boot right down on their neck. And he was not just a slave master, but he was a horrible slave master, as we're going to look in the text today. There's a lot of reasons why we could say Pharaoh is a jerk, but one of the things that I want to key in on is the fact that this Pharaoh we're going to study today This Pharaoh has a heart condition. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the phrase heart condition, I think of physical ailments. When I was a child, like maybe five or six years old, I remember my my grandpa had a heart attack. And they rushed him in for surgery. He had a quadruple bypass surgery, which was, was a big deal in the late 70s. And I was too young to know what the heart was all about. I mean, I didn't understand blood vessels and veins and arteries. And I didn't understand that the the, the heart is a powerful muscle inside the body. But this is what I did understand. That the heart is a big deal. And that uh, my parents were incredibly sad when they heard that news. The heart is a big deal. Now, of course, we're not talking about the physical heart of Pharaoh. We're talking metaphorically. We're talking spiritually about his spiritual heart. The phrase that's used over and over in this story in the book of Exodus is that Pharaoh had a hard heart. We're going to look at what that means today. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It's used like 18 times that way. Pharaoh had a hard heart or his heart was hardened. I want to show you right now the first place we see this language used in our Bible. I'm in Exodus chapter 4, beginning with verse 21. Listen to these words. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so that he may worship you. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Now there's a lot of things going on here. 
Maybe you have a question about, is God hardening Pharaoh's heart or is Pharaoh, is his heart already hardened and God's just kind of taking advantage of that? I think that's the case. I think that God knows the hearts of men and he knew that Pharaoh's heart was hard toward the things of God. And so God just allowed Pharaoh to do his thing and over and over again, God just let Pharaoh's heart be hard. He didn't supernaturally intercede to soften Pharaoh's heart for him. You might also be wondering, um, you know, this whole thing about the firstborn son. Well, this is kind of a, uh, a precursor. This is a kind of a teaser to let us know how the story ends. This is kind of the first volley in the story. But at the very end of this story, Pharaoh does, in fact, lose his firstborn son. There's 10 plagues that God sends on the nation of Egypt because of Pharaoh's hard heart. The last one is the death of the firstborn son. Pharaoh, every other household in Egypt that night loses their firstborn son. Why? Because Pharaoh has a heart condition and he refuses to yield before the living God, the creator God of the universe. So you might be asking some questions like, which Pharaoh is this? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to back up just a little bit. Before. Okay, now that's the setup here. This, remember, this is all about helping you to not be a jerk. Now I'm going to teach this text here in a minute, but I want him to, you know, let's let him develop his thought a little bit. We're still in the intro here before we dive into this story. There are actually at least eight that I can count different pharaohs mentioned in our Bible. Pharaoh is a title. It means king over Egypt. And uh, the nation of Israel, the Holy Land, is actually pretty close to the nation of Egypt. And so over the years, different people in the nation of Israel have different interactions with different pharaohs. The one we're going to study tonight is actually the fourth pharaoh we find mentioned in Scripture. The first one you could find way back in the book of Genesis, Father Abraham. Abraham is living in the land of Canaan, and he and his wife, Sarah... It just kind of begs the question, do you think that all of this historical information... I mean, what's interesting about Stan here is that he believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. He's, he's not attacking it. He believes it's the Word of God. And so we're getting part of the historical grammatical method being put in place here, the historical piece of it... But do you really think that the reason why Pharaoh's in the Bible is to teach you so to how to not be a jerk? You know, see, that's the reason why God had this all take place in history and have it recorded in Scripture is so that you can learn how to not be a jerk. <laughs> Trust me when I tell you, that's far, far from the point that God's trying to make here. Are in the middle of a drought. Sound familiar? They don't have any water. And so they leave Canaan and they go to Egypt. And there, Pharaoh, the first Pharaoh we find mentioned in Scripture, he hits on Sarah, on uh, Abraham's wife. It's an interesting story. I'll let you read that one on your own. Then four generations later, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's son, Joseph. Joseph has the coat of many colors. Perhaps you remember this story. His brothers hate him. They despise him. They beat him up, throw him down into a cistern. And then there's this group, this traveling caravan of merchants that come past. They're slave traders. His brothers sell Joseph into slavery. They carry him to Egypt. 
And there, for the next, like, the last 23 chapters of the book of Genesis, there's this story of how Joseph rises from slave to second in command over all of Egypt, behind only, to you guessed it, Pharaoh. Different Pharaoh than the one we read about four generations before. The end of the book of Genesis finds uh, the nation of Israel living peacefully among the rest of the Egyptians. Now, when you close the book on the 50th chapter of Genesis and you open the next book, Exodus chapter 1, there's a gap there of about 400 years. I was thinking about that this last week. That's a pretty big gap. I mean, 400 years, it's easy to say it. It's another thing to think about. This is a long period of time. How many of you celebrated the 4th of July, Independence Day, this last Wednesday? I'm curious, how many of you went outside in the record-breaking heat? I can tell by the crispy looks on your faces that some of you did. I did. Went down to the south side of Indianapolis. Uh, My brother and his wife, we spent time with them and their three kids. I love my brother. I love my my sister-in-law. I love my nephew and my nieces. And I really like their pool. And we spent Wednesday afternoon, the 4th of July, just hanging out in their pool. Did you do the math that day to figure out how long we had been a country? I didn't either. It's kind of a nerdy thing to do. But yesterday, I was, worried, I was wondering about it, and so I did the math yesterday. If you count it up backwards, and if you do the math, I believe it leaves us with 236 years that our nation has been a country. So, 236 years ago takes us all the way back to, like, Benjamin Franklin and the Founding Fathers, which seems, in my mind, like forever ago. Well, that's about half, a little bit over half, of the span of time that the Israelites were living in Egypt as neighbors. I wonder how many of you are from a small town. Perhaps you can relate to this. You know how you can live in a small town and like 30 years after you moved in, people still kind of refer to you as an outsider? You get comments like, you ain't from around here, are you? It takes a long time sometimes to break in to that culture. Well, that must be the case in ancient Egypt as well. 400 years later, there's a new sheriff in town number three, Pharaoh, and he looks at this nation of Israel. They're like a million people strong at this point. And we get a look into his heart. He must have been a fearful man because he was worried that if this group of people were to rise up, they could become an army that could overflow, or overthrow maybe his army. And so this Pharaoh, number three, becomes the oppressor and he puts his foot on their neck and he makes them slaves and he makes them begin to build some of those incredible monuments that you could go to Egypt and see today. It's Pharaoh number three. Now, he dies, and his son comes to power. His son is Pharaoh number four, the one we're going to look at today. He is the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, scholars kind of debate on who this person is. The Bible doesn't say. The Bible really just kind of leaves it uh, wide open, refers to him by his title rather than his name. We just know him as Pharaoh. Some scholars think, in case you're wondering, that uh, the Pharaoh of the oppression and the Pharaoh of the Exodus are Thutmose III and Amenhotep II. It's my opinion. It's my opinion that that's who we're talking about here, that the Pharaoh we're going to look at today is Amenhotep, Amenhotep, easy for me to say, II. 
Or uh, some scholars think that uh, the Pharaoh of the oppression and the Pharaoh of the Exodus are father and son, Seti one and Ramses two. There's reasons pro and con on both sides. It's my opinion we're talking about Amenhotep II. Not going to take issue with his historical archaeological scholarship here. It's, it's kind of a moot point. It really doesn't matter. Because uh, we're not so much looking at who he was, but rather we're going to examine what he did. And the Bible is very clear on what he did. Pharaoh had a heart condition. Yes, he did. And we all do. Um, Yeah, (laughs) these details are driving me crazy. Got your Bible. Exodus chapter 4. We'll start at verse 21. Let me give you a little bit of context that will help you understand the bigger picture, okay? Who was Pharaoh as far as his office is concerned? Pharaoh is an office. What is the office? Answer, Pharaoh is a god king. What does that make Pharaoh? A false god. You have a false God enslaving and oppressing God's people, right? And God, the true God, is going to show up and judge that false God and hold him accountable for oppressing his people. That's kind of the bigger picture that's going on here, okay? So when you read this story, you have to see it as a showdown. This is a showdown between the false god, Pharaoh, and the, the real god, the one that truly exists. This is, this is, in a sense, a kind of parallel to the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and Mount Carmel. This is a more extended version of that, but you have to see Pharaoh for what he is. He's not just a political figure. He is a religious political figure. It is the ultimate merger of church and state, okay, with a visible God-man at the top of the heap, Pharaoh, okay? Verse 21, chapter 4, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Who's in control? God is. Well, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. <laughs> this is great language here that should point you right to Christ. Okay. Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Let my son go. Let my son go. You're going, there's a lot of, there's a lot of Hebrews. Why is he talking about let my son go? Because somewhere in the loins of one of the men of the tribe of Judah is the unborn Messiah. Okay. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. That's why this firstborn language is going on, because the only begotten son of God is in the loins of one of the men of the tribe of Judah. That's what's going on here. Okay. Now fast forward to chapter 5. 
Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Hmm, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So this is a conflict between two gods. Okay, One is a false god, the other is a true god. So then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh, our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past, but let them go and gather straws for themselves. And But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they they cry, let us go offer and sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men so that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. Right? Yeah, things are not going so hot. And so Moses has to go report that to the you know, children of Israel. And um, things are not getting any better for them. Fast forward now to chapter 6. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. So God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan and the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in and tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let, my pe let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am, uh, I am an of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Okay, moving ahead a little bit. 
chapter 7, verse 1. And then Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your prophet Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as Yahweh commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. When Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff Cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same thing by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Say to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile and to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into the serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go so that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, over their canals and their ponds, and all the pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after Yahweh struck the Nile. Chapter 8. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you, do, if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the house of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and all your people and on your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand and your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt." 
Now, I'm going to just kind of jump ahead here, okay, and just kind of outline this. This is, you know, let's, let's now talk a little bit broad brush strokes here. We have these 10 plagues. You got the plague of the frogs. You got the plague of gnats. You got the plague of locusts. You got darkness. I mean, this is, and it just gets each, you know, you've got literally hail and fire together, you know. Uh, you know, you've got this bizarre set of extreme circumstances, these extreme acts of judgment. Why? Because the one true God is confronting a false God. And at the end of the day, how do the children of Israel avoid the last plague? The last plague is the destroyer, the one who kills all the firstborn of Egypt. Answer, by the blood of the Passover lamb, their houses are passed over because of the blood of the lamb on their doors. Okay, now, keep this in mind. Old Testament is types and shadows, okay, that point us to the reality, okay? Now, I, I, don't, I do not have the ability to do this justice here, but these plagues show up again in Scripture, and I want to show you where. If you have not made this connection, this is a vital connection that will help you to see something regarding the future. Now, I don't know much about the future. I only know what Scripture reveals. And the clearer it is, the better I have an idea of what's going on. The book of Revelation ain't so clear. It's tough there because there's a lot of symbolic language. But I want you to point, I want to show you something here. And that will, well, really kind of get your attention. Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints, the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it onto the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, a blazing like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and of the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water. Okay, You'll, You're going to see that you've got locusts and frogs. and Yeah, what's going on here? There's, there's a similar pattern. And this one is veiled in symbolic language. But you should pay attention that the same types of plagues, and even almost very specifically the same plagues that the Egyptians experienced, are being played out again at the end of the world, and the you know right at the you know uh, on the eve of the day of judgment, if you would. Okay, and I think that that is 
important to understand. Because when we look in the Old Testament, Pharaoh, I would say very clearly, is a type. He's a false god. He is a false god king. I think he clearly is a type of Satan or even the man of lawlessness, the one who is coming, who basically exalts himself above all things that are called God and demands worship, and he controls both government and religion. And God brings his people out with the same mighty acts of judgment that he brought the people of Israel out, those who are washed and covered by the blood of the Lamb. You see the, the themes here now? This is what's really going on here. That's really, this is starting, we're starting to dig down into the proper meaning and proper understanding of what's going on in this historic event, the clash between the one true God, Yahweh, and the false God, the false God king known as Pharaoh. There's a bigger picture going on here. This was not written so that you would learn how to not be a jerk. I mean, that treatment of the text completely trivializes it and misses the gospel point that's there in the Passover lamb. Oy. Yeah, yeah, it drives me crazy when people refuse to preach the biblical text according to what God has revealed and for the purposes and the message that God has revealed in them. We continue. He had a hard heart. Um, the ancient Egyptians, it's interesting to note, they had a thing with the heart. I've got a picture I want to show you. Put this up on the screen. This is a photograph of a piece of papyrus. Uh, you could actually go to the British Museum and see this. This is the papyrus of Ani. It's in the, in, in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, circa somewhere around B.C. 1275, just a few hundred years, two or three hundred years after the Exodus. Now, what you're looking at here in this picture is, I don't read hieroglyphics, so I'm trusting the people that uh, I read uh, as they talked about this, as they commented on it. You've got there a scale in the middle, and you've got some various Egyptian small g gods that are judging this particular Pharaoh as he's getting ready to enter into the afterlife. And as you look at the scales, on one side, you see a human heart. On the other side, you see a feather. The idea being that in order to enter into the afterlife, the ancient Egyptians believed that his heart needed to be pure. His heart needed to be as light as a feather. Isn't that interesting? They had this thing with the human heart. I'm sure when you were a child, you probably studied in elementary school like I did about the process of mummification. I was always fascinated by this as a kid. And as I've read a little bit more about this, the ancient Egyptians, when they were preparing a pharaoh for burial, they would actually um, revere the human heart. They wouldn't so much with the brains, this is kind of disgusting, but they would pull the brains out through the nasal cavity and just throw them away when they were mummifying a body. They would take the heart, they would open up the abdomen, and they would pull out other organs, and some of those they would save somewhere else. But you know what they did with the heart? They kept the heart inside the body. And they prepared the heart with the rest of the body for mummification. Because they believed that the seed of emotions, they believed that the heart was what controlled the rest of the body. They attached great significance to the heart. Now, I'm a Christian preacher. I don't believe what uh, the ancient Egyptians believed. I don't even completely understand it. They worshipped nature and they worshipped these different small g gods that were connected to different elements of nature. I don't completely understand it and I'm not preaching their message. 
But I do think it's interesting that what they believed about Pharaoh, the standard that they would have been holding him to as well, well, they wanted his heart to be pure. The same is true of the Christian message. There's a passage of scripture that I would like for us to memorize together. I think this whole message could hang on this particular passage of scripture. This is Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Listen to these words. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Let's just memorize that together right now, shall we? Say it with me. Ready? Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Say it again with me. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. One more time. Above all else, guard your heart. Why? For it is the wellspring of life. You get what this proverb is saying. The Bible is written in a fairly arid environment. You know, if you're here in the Carmel campus, you heard Derek speak earlier about a trip that Kay Palmer and I are going to co-lead in March to the Holy Land. And I'm excited. I can't wait to do it. I can't wait to go and see these places that I've studied, that I've read about my whole life, to touch them, to to, to smell the smells and experience the experiences. I think it's going to make my Bible come alive. I can't wait to do that. Those of you in West Lafayette, I don't think you heard about that in the announcements, but you're welcome to come as well. We would love to have you join us. You can get more information at northviewchurch.us slash Holy Land. There you can find out all the information, including the deadlines and stuff. You can find that information there. You wouldn't have to go to the Holy Land, though. You could just look in pictures to see that it's a very arid environment. There's some places that are lush and green, but much of that culture, most of the year, is fairly arid and dry. Water in that culture, you could draw an equal sign between water and life. Listen, I don't have to tell you that today, right? I mean, we are living in a drought. I, I used to live in Las Vegas, and just for fun, yesterday on my phone, I pulled up the um, weather here and the weather there. It was actually hotter here than it is in Las Vegas, and Las Vegas is a desert. When we lived there, we would hear news reports every once in a while about somebody whose car broke down out on the highway. This is before the days of cell phones, and they didn't have enough water with them, and so they'd take off walking. And they'd get so far and they'd have a heat stroke. Why? Well, because water is life. And this text is comparing your heart to water. Guard your heart above all else. For your heart is the wellspring of life. I would encourage you for the rest of our time together to be asking yourself, are you really guarding your heart? Or has your heart become callous? Has it become hard? Has it become unmoving, unmendable, unmalleable before our God? Pharaoh has a hard heart, and there's much we can learn about him. I want to share with you four heart symptoms that Pharaoh has that we want to avoid. Now, let me call. <sighs> it's like this totally misses the whole point. He's got, yeah, he's got heart symptoms. And so here's four heart symptoms that you just need to look at the life of Pharaoh so that you can avoid. Yeah, starting with making himself a god king. We're talking about a character out of history. It's kind of a dusty old character. It's a dead title. My goodness, we don't even call anybody Pharaoh anymore. 
we might be tempted to think, what in the world can this teach me about me? Well, I believe actually quite a bit. I believe the prayer I prayed earlier. I believe. And therein lies the problem. What can this story teach me about me? Because really, the Bible's about me. So I have to look at the story of Pharaoh and say, how can me be edified? And how can me be focused on? And what is this telling me about me? And there's your problem right there. That explains why he's missing the whole point of the whole story. Good story of judgment and salvation. Hi. Second Timothy chapter three that says all scriptures God breathed and it's useful for teaching, correcting, training in righteousness, rebuking even when it's necessary. So I would encourage you on your notes on the back side of the worship program, you have a couple spots where we talk about Pharaoh's heart. We talk about your heart, my heart. I would encourage you to be autobiographical whenever you can and jot down some honest things that you can reflect on later about the condition of your own heart. Here's the first symptom we see from Pharaoh's heart. The first hard heart symptom is blatant disobedience. Blatant disobedience. I'm grabbing this from Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Listen to these words. We're going to blow through a bunch of scriptures here. You can just kind of track right along. Uh, Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 and following. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? You can almost hear the sarcasm dripping off of his vocal cords. Who is the Lord? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. The first symptom of a hard heart is blatant disobedience. Okay, so Moses takes this information back to this group of people that are the slaves, the nation of Israel. He says, Pharaoh's not going to let us go. And not only is he a slave master, but he's going to kind of tighten the noose a little bit around us. We've been building these monuments for him. Our job is to make bricks. So there's some water, there's some clay, mud, and there's some straw. And we put them together in the sun and they bake to become bricks. He is going to mess with us because we're kind of asking him this thing. And he said, no longer can you have straw to make your bricks from. But you're going to have to go out and find your own straw. And by the way, your quota is still the exact same. I need you to produce the same amount of bricks. The people grumble. They're frustrated. They're frustrated with their leader, with Moses. As you can imagine, he's having a leadership crisis. He goes to God with questions. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Skip down to verse 10. The Lord said to Moses, verse 11, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. There's some discussion about how this is going to happen. Finally, Moses and Aaron approach Pharaoh, king over all of Egypt. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. This is how we're going to get this message across. God is telling Moses. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I commanded you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Again, the condition of his heart is hard. 
And then I will multiply, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. So Moses approaches Pharaoh. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. He'd given them encouragement to show them a sign. This is what he does. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. That's a cool party trick, right? God tells Moses, we're going to give you a sign to show Moses that this isn't just some slave asking to be released. This is somebody who is speaking for God, the creator God of the universe. Now, a funny thing happens. Pharaoh is able to call on his kind of court magicians. They come in, and they do the same thing. They throw down their staffs, and their staffs become snakes. Now, we don't know if it's some kind of sleight-of-the-hand trick. Maybe they're tapping into demonic powers. We're not sure. Scholars are kind of split on their opinion on that. It is interesting to note that Aaron's staff, snake, gobbles up the rest of the snakes. God's still in control. Isn't that cool? But look what Pharaoh does. Verse 13, yet Pharaoh's heart became hard as he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord, verse 14, said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. He didn't respond to this sign that we've given him, God. Now what do we do? God says, well, we're going to go ahead and unleash on him. Go ahead and tell him that we're going to do the first plague. There's 10 of them total. The, the first plague, Moses and Aaron walk out to the Nile River. The Nile River represents life in ancient Egypt. You get a few miles either side of that river. The river is teeming with life, but without water, it's a very arid climate, very arid culture. Moses and Aaron stand next to the Nile River, and they spread their arms out over it, and God turns the Nile River to blood. First plague. As you can imagine, things can't live in bloody water. This is, this is, this is not good uh, for the Egyptians. Skip down to verse 22. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. The first symptom of a hard heart is blatant disobedience. And even through the first plague, we see Pharaoh's heart characterized by just absolute blatant disobedience. The second hard heart symptom, if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. The second hard heart symptom is insincerity. Insincerity. Look at Exodus chapter 8, verse 6. We're into the second plague by now. God tells Moses, So the way to not be a jerk is just, don't do the things that he did. He was insincere and slow to obey God. And see, it's this is all law, by the way. There's no gospel in here at all. And yet, when you understand the bigger story about this being a showdown, judgment against a false god who is holding God's people in slavery, and how God saves through the blood of the Lamb, you see the big picture and you realize... This is about God's mighty hand, God's salvation, God's redemption, God's action. He's the one who brings the people out of, uh, out of Egypt with a mighty hand, with mighty acts of judgment, right? 
And he brings you out the same way, too. Ay, 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 ay. We continue. We're going to put frogs over all of Egypt. This is kind of cool. Exodus chapter 8, verse 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land. This is funny. I mean, picture this ancient civilization, and there are frogs everywhere. Even places where you don't want frogs to be, like where you go to the bathroom. Or maybe in your bathtub. Or I picture some of these Egyptian women going to cook and they open up a pot or maybe a jar and there's a frog sitting right there looking at them, croaking at them. I think this is meant to be funny. Um, Pharaoh doesn't find it so funny. Uh, we can see what he does. Chapter 8, verse... Yeah, I don't think these acts of judgment, that it was a joke. Ah. Verse 8, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said... Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people. And I will let your people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. He's asking for prayer. This is forward progress, isn't it? Verse 9, Moses said to Pharaoh, I leave to you the honor of setting the time for me to pray for you and your officials and your people, that you and your houses, houses may be rid of the frogs, except for those that remain in the Nile River. I like that. He's saying, you know, the ones that are supposed to be there, we'll go ahead and leave those. Tomorrow, Pharaoh said, tomorrow's the day. Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Here's the thing. In Pharaoh's reaction, we see the mistakes that individuals make today when things get difficult in their lives. In times of difficulty, they put God off. <laughs> I mean, serious. Pharaoh is being judged by God. And that translates into times of difficulty. Do you suffer from hangnails? Do you have halitosis and bad breath? Are you suffering from a bad job? Are you experiencing times of difficulty in your life? This is just like it when God judged Pharaoh. Yeah. Pharaoh puts off submitting to God until the very last possible moment. Tomorrow, he says, will be soon enough. In times of crisis, people cry out to God. When and only when they have exhausted every human possibility, they turn to God in prayer. Pharaoh does this. In times of relief, though, they forget God. Pharaoh promised to take the children, let the children of Israel go. But when there was relief, when the frogs were gone... He changed his mind. We read this in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15, which says, But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Second hard heart symptom is insincerity. He says one thing, and then he does another. Third hard heart symptom is bargaining with God. Bargaining with God. Pharaoh offers four different bargains to God. The proposals that Pharaoh offers to God, I believe, are the same that Satan offers to the Christian today. The first one is this. He says, serve God, but stay in Egypt. Exodus chapter 8, verse 25 says this. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God here in the land. You've been asking to go. You've been asking to leave to go sacrifice. I'll let you sacrifice, but I want you to stay right here where I can keep an eye on you. 
I was thinking about this principle this last week in my office. I was studying for this um, sermon, and uh, I was using a Bible that I absolutely love. It's called the Thompson Chain Reference Bible. I've had this Bible since I was in college. Basically, it allows you to, to go on a treasure hunt through Scripture. You start with one passage of Scripture, you read it, and then you look over into the column, and it sends you to another passage of Scripture, and then from there it takes you to another passage, and it's a really cool way to study the Bible. And I'm reading, studying for this particular message, and out of this Bible falls a picture that I haven't seen in a long time. It's a picture uh, that my wife, she was my girlfriend then, gave to me when we were in college. She writes a little note here at the top of it. I'm not going to read it to you because it was just for me. (laughs) It's a picture of her standing in her dorm room. And uh, there's on the wall behind her uh, like a shelving unit that her grandpa had built for her. And I'm looking at this in my office, and I'm just kind of looking at the different details, and there's some memorabilia she has there on the shelf, even some things that I had given her while we were dating. Then I look a little bit closer behind her, and there's a picture of the two of us. It's a picture I've not seen in years. I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, look at that hair, look at that shirt. I'm wearing a black and white silk shirt. looked like Garth Brooks, mid-'90s. And I'm looking at it, and I, I, I do this thing right here. Now, for those of you who own an iPhone or perhaps an iPad or an iPod, you're familiar with that gesture, right? It's supposed to make it zoom. It didn't. I'm looking at a piece of paper. Now, I'm all alone in my office. It's one thing if it was just one time that it happened, but I got a little bit frustrated, and I'm looking at it like, well, it didn't zoom. It didn't work. Oh, I'm an idiot, right? It just kind of hits me all of a sudden. Now, here's the thing. I feel like I'm in group therapy. Even the guy's voice is that of kind of like one of those soothing psychological types. Ah! Um, what does this have to do with staying in Egypt? Well, I'm- what does this have to do with Christ is probably the better question. But like nothing. What does this have to do with the gospel? Like nothing. Where do you hear the solution, by the way? <laughs> You know, remember what I read in the first hour regarding by works of the law, no one will be declared righteous. It's by faith in the gospels, by the good, the good news of the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. Wait, wait to hear the solution to this thing. <clears throat> yeah, I was, um, just so you know, um, I have begun a, a, an exercise regimen, which includes swimming. And I, I have a, an MP3 player that is waterproof. And I was listening to this sermon while I was in the pool. And uh, when we get to the end, I I kid you not, I almost choked and drowned in the pool. The lifeguards would have had to come and rescue me if I had not collected myself. Oh, man, it's it's just so awful. There's like no hope. I mean, it's just throwing you back on yourself. But we continue – I almost feel like I'd rather watch Rob Bell's paint drawing than listen to this. I'm not against technology. Not at all. I actually think that technology is neutral. I think that it's meant to serve us. And uh, we could use it for good to serve God, or we could use it for evil to serve our own desires, maybe even sin. I think technology is neutral, but I was thinking about my age and the number of years that I've had an iPhone. I'm 37. I've carried one of those phones for maybe four years now. We've only had an iPad in our home for maybe six months. I was just thinking how quickly I have become conditioned 
to make my muscles and my brain want to respond a different way than I was trained earlier. I mean, I've been looking at print pictures a whole lot longer than I've been looking at digital pictures. But how quickly have I been conditioned to see it? I want to make it happen this way. I think about a passage of scripture. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know, I would love to hear a seeker-driven pastor actually exegete like Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Um, before they ever get... It's, it's as if Romans begins at Romans 12, 1, 1.5. <clears throat> Could you tell me a little bit about God's mercies? It says, in lieu of God's mercies. And, and Paul spends almost 12 chapters fleshing that concept out so we get it. Uh, and, and um, you know, these guys just pick up right there and just, in light of God's mercy, offer your, you got to do something. You got to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> and do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. You see, it's my opinion that way too many Christians are living with one foot in Egypt and the other foot in God's world. Mm -mm. He's called you out of that place of death. He's called you out of the toilet. He's called you out of sin. Why do we want to keep going back in? This is a way that Pharaoh is bargaining with God. I wonder if sometimes we do the same thing. We say, God, I'll serve you, but I want to stay right here in Egypt. I want to stay here in this place of death. Second way that Pharaoh bargains with God. He says, don't fully commit yourself is what he says. This is chapter 8, verse 28. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. You get the progression here? He's saying, you know, I'm not going to let you leave to go worship. You can stay and do that right here. Okay, I'll let you go, but I, you can go just a little bit of distance where I can keep my eyes on you. Don't fully commit yourself. He's saying, leave your options open. Live with your eyes on Egypt. God wants a clean break. He wants us to leave that death, that place of death behind. The plague that we read those verses from in chapter 8 is the plague of the flies. There's a whole series of plagues after that. There's a plague of the death of livestock. Oh, I bet those were stinky days in Egypt. There's a plague of boils, these legions on the skin. There's a plague of hail, a plague of locusts, which brings us to the third place where Pharaoh bargains with God. He says, don't force your beliefs on others. Chapter 10, verse 11 says this. No, Moses keeps coming to Pharaoh and saying, we want to leave. We want to go worship God. We want to leave. Pharaoh says, no, have only the men go and worship the Lord since that's what you've been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh offers to let the men go, but not the women and the children. If you have to go, then go, but don't take your loved ones with you. See, the thing is, I think that the devil is still trying to convince believers let your children make up their own minds when they're old enough. Don't try to teach your children about God. Don't. What? 
<laughs> Don't try to influence your child to attend church. Let your children be a part of the world so they can have all of its advantages. Then when the plague struck Egypt, Pharaoh confessed his sins and he asked Moses for forgiveness and he asked that the plague be stopped. This is the plague of locusts. His confession is not real, though. And when the plague was removed, Pharaoh returned to his old ways, and he would not let Israel go. Then another plague, a new plague, the ninth plague, is the plague of darkness. It falls all over Egypt. The darkness was so intense that for three days the Egyptians could not get up out of I'm beginning to think the plague of darkness has fallen over Northview Church. There's like no light in the sermon. Good night. Out of their beds. The darkness was so great that the Bible says it could be felt. Pharaoh's response to the plague was to offer another compromise to the children of Israel. The fourth compromise, he says, don't commit everything. Chapter 10, verse 24, then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and your herds behind. Have you gotten the progression? Pharaoh, or Moses came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go, period. And Pharaoh comes back and says, well, you can go worship, but I want you to do it right here in Egypt. He comes back and says, no, let my people go. Pharaoh says, well, you can do it, but why don't you go just outside of Egypt where I can keep my eyes on you? No, let my people go. Okay, you can go, you can leave Egypt and go, but just the men, just the men go. No, let my people go. Okay, you can go and you can take the women with you so the whole family can go, but I want you to leave your stuff behind. Here's the thing. You can't serve God without sacrifice. It's not okay to have your religion. You can't serve God without sacrifice. That's right. Can't do it. That's why Christ was sacrificed on the cross. Can't serve God without sacrifice. That's why Christ offered up himself. He was pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, right? That's what he means, right? You can't serve God without sacrifice, pointing to the sacrifice of the Son of God for our sins, right? Wrong. And not let it affect the way you live the rest of your life. When Pharaoh's offer was refused by Moses, he warned Moses to leave his presence and that if he should ever return, it would mean his death. The fourth symptom of a hard heart is this, conviction without commitment. As a result of the plague of hail that I've already mentioned, Pharaoh saw the error of his ways and the consequences of his actions. Pharaoh was convicted, and well, here, let me read for you. Exodus chapter 9 Begin with verse 27. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Sounds like we're finally making progress. Moses replied, when I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop, and there will be no more hail. So you, will, you may know that the earth is the Lord's. God's going to get the glory. But I know that you and your official, officials still do not fear the Lord God. Um, Pharaoh was convicted, but he made no change. Being convicted of our sins is not the same as being saved from our sins. You can sit in a service with tears streaming down your face because of the deep conviction 
of your sins. But that doesn't save you. So what does? I agree with your point, but what saves me then? It takes more than conviction. It also takes commitment. Oh, oh my. So it takes commitment. You got to be committed to not do that again. Otherwise, you can't be saved. He has just damned every one of his listeners. Put them back under the law. I mean, that's exactly the point of Galatians 3 that I read earlier. Hang on a second. Let me pull out the passage. Galatians chapter 3. Okay, Paul chastising them. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law law, and continue to do do them. It is evident that no one is justified, that means declared righteous before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Doesn't say in order to be saved, you gotta you got you have to be you gotta feel sorry for your sins and then be committed. It's repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. This guy is giving basically saying yeah, you know, if you've got a hard heart like Pharaoh, well, and don't just cry about it. You got to be committed to doing the right thing. Otherwise, you can't be saved. Law, 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 more law. No gospel here at all. And that misses the whole point of the imagery of the Passover lamb that was sacrificed and their blood saved them from the destroyer. Ah! We continue. To be delivered from our sins, we must commit ourselves to the Lord. Pharaoh doesn't do that, and it does not go well with him. We read in chapter 9, verse 35, what happens. He says in verse 35, so Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said to Moses. It doesn't go well for him from that point forward. He loses his firstborn child. I already mentioned that. That's how the story ends. Not just Pharaoh, but all of Egypt wails over the loss of their firstborn children. Pharaoh loses an heir. I also suspect that in that moment, he lost a lot of influence as a power broker, as a leader in his culture. It doesn't end there. He's so overcome with his grief that he says to Moses, go ahead, go and get out of here. And Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt in the middle of the night. And they come to the um, Red Sea and they go across, perhaps you've read the story, on dry ground. And then Pharaoh comes and pursues them. He has a last minute change of heart. His heart is fickle. It goes back and forth. And his army is out in the middle of the water and the water comes back together and his whole army is drowned up. He loses his military and political might as well. Pharaoh loses an awful lot. Why? Well, because of his heart condition. Because he has a hard heart. Yeah, that's Pharaoh. That was then. This is now. You might be asking, well, what what about me? You know, Jesus speaks of a hardened heart. Actually, there's this bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament, this concept of a hardened heart. It goes all through Scripture. It's not just an old covenant thing. It's a new covenant thing as well. Jesus speaks of a hardened heart. Can you explain to me what the new covenant is then? Because in order to be saved, I've got to, well, I've got to commit myself. When is, where is that a stipulation in the new covenant? I'm curious. Can you point it out to me? 
hardened heart. But you know, where else we see this is in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is writing to who? The Hebrews. Trick question, right? He's writing to a group of Jewish people who are the descendants of this group of people that we were just reading about, the slaves in ancient Egypt. Listen to what he says. Verse 7, chapter 3, Hebrews. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me. Though for 40 years they saw what I did, that is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray. They have not known my ways, so I declared an oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. Which is true. The, the, the generation that left Egypt, they didn't get to go into the promised land. They died out wandering in the wilderness. It was the next generation that got to inhabit the promised land. But you, did you catch that phrase? Their hearts were hard. Really? I thought we were talking about Pharaoh. These are the group of slaves. Their hearts were hard as well? Yeah, they became that way. Monkey see, monkey do, right? Pharaoh has a hard heart. Yeah, I think this sermon's a whole bunch of monkey do, for sure. The oppressor has influenced the oppressed. They get some freedom. They get out into the wilderness, out into the desert. They're gone just a matter of days, maybe weeks, just at most a couple of months. And you, you do understand they're suffering from a bad case of being sinful by nature, just like all of us suffer from... By the way, Jesus... um notes that out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Um, yeah, it's out of your heart comes all of these things. See, all of us have a heart condition. All of us, according to Ephesians 2, are born dead in trespasses and sins. And according to Romans chapter 3, there's none righteous, no, not one. All of us stand before God with a really bad heart problem that's corrupt and sinful and hard to the core. So what, you know, do you have anything, do you have any hope to offer us here? They've seen these signs and wonders all around them. They see evidence of God's mercy, God's glory. They're hungry. God sends manna from heaven. They're thirsty. God has Moses strike a rock and water comes out. They can't see where they're going, and so he sends a, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God is taking care of them, and yet they bicker and they complain, and they lose sight of who God is and where he is in their life. Their hearts become hard. We can do the same thing. It actually happened to Jesus' disciples. You could read about it later in Mark chapter 6. There's this amazing story where Jesus' closest disciples, the 12 disciples, are there with Jesus when he's out on a hillside teaching 5,000 people. It's toward the end of the day, and they're hungry, and they realize that nobody brought any food. And so he uh, says, does anybody have any food? And one little boy, his mom had packed him a lunch, and he had five loaves of bread and two fish. And Jesus multiplies this food in a very miraculous way, so much so that there's food left over afterwards, and he feeds the entire 5,000 people. The text says that God has, or that Jesus has Moses, <laughs> that Jesus has the disciples get into the boat and, and, and row out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee. 
and he's going to go off and pray by himself. Later that night, he's walking along the water, literally walking on top of the water. And the disciples look up and they see him coming. And as you can imagine, they're terrified. And the text actually says that their hearts were hard. Why? Because they had just seen what Jesus was capable of doing. They had forgotten that quickly. Just a couple of chapters. Yes, because they have the same problem we all do. Our corrupt, fallen, sinful natures. Over. If you look in Mark chapter 8, listen to these words. Uh, Jesus overhears the disciples arguing, uh, discussing bread. They've just seen him perform another miracle. They've just seen him feed 4,000 people this time. And they're discussing bread. He's like, you guys don't get it. Verse 17 of chapter 8. And Mark says this, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Have ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? See, here's the thing. Here's more symptoms of a hard heart. For Christ followers were unable to perceive, see Jesus for who he is. Right here from that text we read, we're unable to understand what he's doing right now in this moment. We're unable to see him for who he really is. To be Sounds like an effect of sin to me. Be able to, and we're unable to, to hear his voice in the moment. We're unable to remember. Hear his voice in the moment, huh? Even moments later, what he just did on our behalf. I do this all the time. I think I suffer from a hardened heart. I do. Yeah, I, I just, that's probably a good diagnosis. Too. I came in here the other day. I was struggling with something. It was very petty. I don't even remember what it was, but I was in a bad mood. I walk in actually to this space, and it was like I looked up on the platform, and it was like God reminded me in that moment of what he's doing in our midst. I had these visions in my mind of those moments just not long ago, a year or so ago, when we had like 380, some of you, come up on a weekend, one weekend, and were baptized into Christ. God is amazing. He's doing something in our midst, and I needed to be reminded, oh, God, you're in control. My heart is hard when I lose sight of that fact, when I forget what you're doing. In my personal life, it's the same. I was feeling some silly, petty thing the other day. I assure you, most of the time I'm struggling. Yeah, it's probably sin. So what's the solution to your sin? Can't wait to hear it. Struggling. It's, it's pettiness. My humanness getting in the way. And God reminded me that I'm blessed with five kids. One of them... Your humanness? No, no, no. Your, your corrupt, sinful, fallen, Adamic nature the old-fashioned way, and four of them, we got through a fairly miraculous process through fostering and adoption, and God has blessed me so much with what they're bringing, the richness of what they're bringing into my life. But I forget. I forget. And the hardness of my heart gets in the way. We're going to end our time together with prayer. If you're looking for the cure to a hard heart, here's the cure. You might want to write this down. Uh, don't expect the gospel. You're not going to get it. Get ready. Here comes the solution is law, not the forgiveness of sins, not faith and trust in Christ, not a merciful God and Savior, but 
something else. Down. The cure for a hardened heart is a total commitment to keep our minds focused on the Lord. Let me say Well, well, there you go. So the solution is just a total commitment to keep your minds focused on the Lord. All right, let's try this for 30 seconds. Ready? <laughs> yeah, if I said go, you, you, you'd all know that oh, this is not going to work. I don't care how totally committed you are. That's just not going to work. <clears throat> May I offer an alternate solution, maybe a biblical one? <clears throat> Let me tell you what the Lord, Yahweh, told the children of, Ez- uh, of Israel through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses, verse 22. I'll start there. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my sake, for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. Yahweh declares Yahweh God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. See, that's what's needed. The answer to the problem is how to cure hard-heartedness. Well, that takes regeneration. That takes God removing your heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. That takes God regenerating you, causing you to be born again, bringing you to life through the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. Try as you might, you will not be able to commit to being fully attentive to God and expect to have that actually happen. It's just not going to happen. You are not the solution. Jesus Christ is. And the solution that he offers you is his bloody, beaten, scourged, and dead body on the cross for your sins and then raised from the dead. Christ died for your sins. And he rose again on the third day for our justification. Repent and believe this good news. Be forgiven and then bear fruit in keeping with that forgiveness. That is the biblical solution. This pastor, Stan, his solution is no solution. It's just absolutely darkness, blindness, and leaves you without any hope whatsoever. Because if you're honest, you're not pulling this off. Let me back it up so that you can hear his solution again. It's not the gospel, but basically the law. If you're looking for the cure to a hard heart, here's the cure. You might want to write this down. The cure for a hardened heart is a total commitment to keep our minds focused on the Lord. Let me say that again. Good luck. You won't be saved then. The cure for a hardened heart is a total commitment to keep our minds focused on the Lord. Good luck. Because total commitment to keep your mind, that means all times, at all times, at all places, every minute, every day, every second. 
Just be committed to it. Got to you got to execute it now. You got to be committed, and then once you're committed, you got to do it. This is the law. He's put them under a curse. For cursed is everyone who does not continue to keep all of the things written in the law perfectly all times. Can continue to do them. I'm going to invite you right now. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? No. No, not, no. There's no way I'm going to pray a prayer. I'm going to commit myself fully to, that's not going to do anything. The good news is that Christ committed himself fully to the obedience of God's law, and he kept it perfectly in your place. And by faith, your sins are forgiven, and by faith, his righteousness is imputed and credited to you as if you lived it. That's the good news. Repent of your sins. Be forgiven. And you will, because you can't help but do it, bear fruit in keeping with that repentance and that faith. For without faith, it is impossible, not improbable, but impossible to please God. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. So what would you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy when by Jesus Christ his vicarious penal substitutionary death on the cross for all of your sins, every one of them. Amen. <laughs>